So th this, let's call it a Gaian consciousness. It's gradually uh, taking root inside people. Uh, people are waking up to it more and more. But it's, it's slow. I think the waking up is far slower than the, than the rate of destruction. And what we need now is the, is the rate of waking up to overtake the rate of destruction. And the waking up's got to happen on a massive scale. Um, and I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, but the positive side is that cultural revolutions can happen very quickly. You know, revolutions in consciousness can happen very quickly. This, this one has got to happen quicker than any other, and it's got to happen fast and on a global scale. And it's got to transcend national boundaries, political boundaries, all the sorts of boundaries that we humans have erected between ourselves, gender boundaries, all those boundaries, they've got to fall down. And we all have to unify um, to protect our very own planet for her own sake and for our sake and for the sake of all beings. Is that going to happen? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system, which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Greetings, Earthling. Welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. This is Dan, your host. Thanks for tuning in. Much appreciated. Uh, if this is your first listen, a welcome. Um, so first up, I'm going to ask you for a favour before we get into this episode. Would you mind heading on over to your podcast provider like Apple or Spotify or whatever and give this show a rating and a review? It will take 60 seconds max and we'd be most grateful so so why dan why should i do that i hear you say well the thing is this podcast is entirely self-funded there's no advertising there's no external funding it's funded by me and there's a lot of folks that put a lot of time and energy into making this happen so if you leave a review on your provider like Apple Podcasts, it will make the show travel to more folks. The more reviews, the more the podcast uh, travels up in people's searches. So if you'd like to give that a go, we'd be very, very grateful. Right. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Stefan Harding, holistic scientist, deep ecologist, co-founder of the legendary Schumacher College, Stefan's work uh, intersects scientific ecology with Gaia theory and the world of psyche and soul. He is author of two books, Anima Earth and his new publication, Gaia Alchemy. Now, Stefan has worked and taught alongside 
the world's leading ecological thinkers, feelers and activists and worked closely and was mentored by scientist and author James Lovelock himself who coined the Gaia theory hypothesis. Uh, I was very lucky to be taught by Stefan back in 2010 uh, and his approach to experiential learning was an absolute game changer for me. My introduction to Gaia theory uh, by him was pivotal in my understanding and experience of our living earth and the journey I've been on over the last decade. Gaia theory has influenced my own take on this remix of the spaceship earth idea, seeing the operating system, if you like, of our spaceship as a living system made up by complex interconnected relationships between all life which demands cooperation and participation between every living thing hence the becoming crew analogy this conversation covers much ground uh, Stefan grounds us in a Gaian context his own journey of becoming a scientist and his deep early sense of a lack of soul in the western science discipline and how that has led on to so much destruction of our living world how do we value our feelings for the more than human world and how to bring moral ethics uh, into all of this which is what we explore uh, in his new book Gaia Alchemy. We speak of the urgency of these times and much more. Stefan is an absolute legend. His wisdom uh, I believe is crucial for these times and there is real gold in this conversation. I was left with uh, a deep reflection actually after this conversation on the let's call it in Stefan's word this Gaian shift being called for right now. Stefan speaks about his belief that the ancient Gaia came back into our Western culture through the, the scientist James Lovelock and the influence that he has had in the scientific world. But we speak of the urgent need for what he would call Gaian consciousness. We might call it deep ecological consciousness. We might call it a paradigm of interconnection and interbeing. All of it really is working from a sacred place that says the world is in fact alive. Nature is in fact a living, complex, animate, sentient, intelligent and vast diverse web of life in relationship with all other life. In short, a world deep in complexity, mystery and intelligence uh, than our Western worldview of modernity, which sees nature as a resource, inert, dead matter over there. As Stefan says, Gaian consciousness is beginning to wake up in more people, but it's not happening at the pace of destruction of our living world and of climate breakdown. And it needs to happen faster and at a massive scale. We're talking a revolution in consciousness, if you like. Now, I'm increasingly of the view that what if Gaia is in fact seeking to come back into our collective consciousness in this moment through the artists and the cultural creatives, those of us who can story and inspire, encourage and guide this deep transformation to occur across our cultures, this falling back in love with life itself and all of the vast, unknowable intelligence of the more than human world. 
humans who can bridge and connect and inspire what our indigenous brothers and sisters and ancient ancestors have always known. This, I feel, is the time. I can see it and sense it increasingly in musicians, in writers, in filmmakers and storytellers, in culture jammers and hackers, in creative activists, in mischief makers, poets and citizens, healers and young parents. I can sense it in the young. What if we put this shift at the centre of our individual creativity and energy? What might happen? Before things unravel in ways that we will not be able to deal with. When I look at temperatures in parts of Asia right now, 50 degrees C plus at just 1.1 degrees of warming, and then look at the total blocked stuckness and denial of government, corporations and media in the global north and beyond to comprehend and accept what is going on, then I'm not overly confident. What is it going to take for old power to accept the situation we're in and act meaningfully? So I'm wondering if you're not putting your creative energy into dismantling these destructive systems, beliefs and stories of separation and accelerating a shift to an interconnected, life-sustaining cultures, then what are you doing? This is the most urgent and creative challenge of our lives and for the future lives on this earth. It's also where all the most interesting and beautiful shit is happening. So get in there, find a crew, get involved. So let's cut to it. This is episode 60 of the Spaceship Earth podcast with Dr. Stefan Harding. Enjoy. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Burgess. Stefan, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's brilliant to have you here. Um, whereabouts are you right now on our Spaceship Earth? Uh, I'm in South Devon, very near Schumacher College at Dartington, in uh, um, a converted double garage, which, which is our study. Amazing. Brilliant. Mm. Well, um, as I say, we tried to, we did attempt, didn't we? we was, there was a, a fleeting moment where we might have been able to do this um, out and out and around about Schumacher. So thank you for, for, for taking the time to join us on this. I, before we sort of dig in, um, actually, I just wanted to share a bit of gratitude, actually, for, for your work and mm. uh, for, um, for, for, you know, for all that you have uh, put out into the world. Um, because, um, for me, like I think I, you know, as I say, I first came across your your work in well, it was twenty ten um, mm -hmm. when I spent a week down at Schumacher College, um, mm -hmm. where you hosted us for a, a kind of week of Gaia theory, and mm -hmm. um, and I have to say, um, life's never been the same since. Yes, I was going to say, yeah. not in a bad way, <laughs> in, no a, in a in a true in a in a truly. Uh, uh, you know, much more sort of expansive way. Um, but, but it, you know, I have to, you know, it was, it really was, um, quite, uh, quite an experience. I mean, even before we sort of dive into, to the sort of into Gaia, it, I guess just the way of the way of learning that you, um, that you offered us down there and the kind of the experiential nature of it and, the kind of mm. I just for me like this very sort of deep meaningful way of learning which was just quite profound at the time something I'd never mm -hmm. experienced um mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so I just wanted to um 
just to acknowledge that and say thank mm. you for all of all of mm. your work. Uh, thank you very much for that. That's nice. Nice to know. So, what I was hoping um, we could start this conversation, um, whether we could help, maybe, or you could help, maybe, kind of guide um our listeners if you like um a little bit into the sort of guy and experience the guy and view of the world just to help kind of ground listeners in the sort of context of this work and our conversation um so there's a way to just where you might be able to sort of give people a little bit of a sense of what this is all about before we dive into your books yeah of course yeah well there, there's many different aspects to gaia uh, if we look at the concept of gaia historically we have to go back um, into in towards the ancients, you know, to ancient Greece. Um, let's let's stop at ancient Greece. Although you can go further back into into ancient India, which is probably where the the notion of Gaia came from. But let's just go to ancient Greece. Um, for the ancient Greeks, um, Gaia was the firstborn of primordial chaos. You see, so she's a real mythological deity. She's a deity, and she's mythological. And she's the first created material thing, first created material being that has come out of this vast, formless, matterless intelligence, which the ancient Greeks called chaos. This sort of, it's very mysterious. We can't understand it. I don't think they could either, this sort of great potentiality to, to become, but it, but it hadn't become. It was an intelligence that hadn't become, but wanted to become matter. And perhaps it pondered and pondered Perhaps there was no time, no space, but anyway, for, for ages and ages, and eventually it realized that the best thing it could become was the deep-breasted earth, as the Greeks, ancient Greeks would say. Mm. And out of chaos came Gaia. Didn't have any animals or plants or humans on her at that point. Um, it's not clear what she did have, but anyway, soon the sea arose, and then eventually she, uh, she gave birth to the sky, to the stars, to the cosmos. Um, so you see how primordial Gaia is. She gave birth to the cosmos with all the stars and the planets and the sun. And then she mated with um, Uranus, which is the, the cosmos with the universe of stars and planets and the sun. She mated um, with her own sun. And out of that came all the animals and the plants and eventually the humans and, of course, the gods and the goddesses, um, various various echelons and races of gods and goddesses so that's who Gaia was for the ancient Greeks um, she was the she was a divinity hmm. more than a goddess a divinity she was the mother of all the gods and goddesses she was the mother of all the mother of everything and the steadfast base of all things as, as Hesiod wrote about 500 BC when he wrote down these ancient myths of Gaia so right at the center of our culture we have this idea this perception that the earth um, is a sacred divinity, firstborn of primordial chaos. Um, and this is deep in our unconscious, you could say. Because, um, of course, what happened later on was, <clears throat> say, around about the time of the scientific revolution, particularly, hmm. but even before that, actually, um, this mother goddess, Gaia, the mother goddess, was basically repressed, and we were, we were cut off from her. It wasn't just in the scientific revolution. It happened in the Neolithic long before the scientific revolution, maybe about 4,000 years ago, whereas the scientific revolution was only about 200 or so years ago. During the Neolithic, um, the goddess cultures were conquered uh, and subjugated by the sky god people from the steppes of Europe, 
with and they were warlike people who swept over the goddess Neolithic cultures uh, of uh, of uh, this part of Europe and southern Europe, and they repressed and got rid of the goddess of Gaia and replaced her with a sky god, masculine sky god. And the scientific revolution picks up on that sky god, as indeed does Christianity, and it imposes this this divinity, at least Christianity, not science any longer, because science is atheistic. But Christianity imposes this. Sky God Divinity, man is a geometer for Descartes, one of the founders of the scientific revolution uh, in the 17th century. He's a, he's a great uh, mathematician, engineer, geometer. He makes the whole universe like a, a great cosmic clockwork, sets it running and then stands back. Gaia's completely gone. And w because of that view, we destroy our, the earth or our culture has destroyed the earth because we just, we've just seen it as a, a soulless, meaningless mechanism that we can exploit as we wish. Descartes, of course, still had God. This is the kind of God I mentioned, the mechanistic sky God. Mm. Mm. But we've even lost that now. So things were getting really bad by around about 1960, you know. We were wrecking the planet quite nicely, even in 1960. And Gaia, in my view, um, has never gone away. I mean, Gaia as a a deep perception of reality, if you like, or even as the divinity of some kind of mysterious archetype in the unconscious, never gone away. She's always been there. In the 1960s, things are so bad that uh, she needs to come back into our culture, in my view. And she realizes that this time she's got to come back through a scientist. She tried to come back in the 19th centuries th through the Romantic poets, um, and before the 19th century, William Blake and didn't work, you know, no one listened to them in any serious way. Uh, so now it's 1960, the uh, climate change is getting worse, biodiversity destruction is getting worse. She knows that it's no good going to poets and artists, we have to go to a scientist. Hmm. And she looks around, I like to think, in the souls of many scientists, and the one she finds, only, she only finds one scientist who's capable of understanding what she means and, and putting that into a scientific context. Although I think he was largely unconscious of that. And that person is, of course, James Lovelock. Hmm. And then through James Lovelock, we get a scientific um, ex explanation or a scientific exposition of Gaia, which is the idea that the Earth is like a living organism, a self-regulating living organism, because of all the interactions between the living beings, that's to say the biota, and the rocks, the atmosphere, and the water on the planets. They in, on the planet, they interact through complex feedbacks, which we can model mathematically and measure, of course, to some extent. And we get an emergent property from those interactions, which is the ability of the whole system of the Earth to regulate its surface conditions within the narrow limits that life can tolerate. So you could say that this shows that uh, the Earth is like a gigantic planetary organism, and Lovelock was prescient enough to give the name Gaia to this Earth system. He got the name Gaia from his friend William Golding, who was a novelist. Mm. And so that's how Gaia has come back into our culture, through science. Um, and I really think we need Gaia very badly right now. Yeah, and Will, <clears throat> amazing. Thank you for thank you for sort of um, setting that context. Beautiful. And um, I think, you know, you because you you know, if we go back into your, um, loop back to, into your earlier career. So you, but you, you were, you work quite closely with James Lovelock. That's right. You was almost a mentor to you, right? It's very much my scientific mentor. Yes. I'd never met a scientist like him. Yeah. Um, so he was very much my scientific mentor and I did work scientifically with him 
for several years working on his daisy world model and i visited him a lot um in his laboratory at home he was an he's an independent scientist so he in those days he had a laboratory in his home on the mm. cornwall Bo um, devon border with about i can't remember how many acres of land 12 15 acres of land which he's allowed to go wild in the middle of the sort of english devastated agricultural landscape you know there was lovelock's place full of native trees and a beautiful pond and it was, it was a wonderful oasis and there was a uh, jim and his wife sandy and um i'd show up and we'd go into his laboratory and we'd talk about guy we'd go for walks and we'd talk about guy we'd do some some daisy world modeling um it was it was fantastic really it was such a privilege um to be with him like that i wasn't the only one there were several other people who spent a lot of time with him mostly climate modelers um and he's had a huge influence on climate modeling. I mean, it wouldn't be the same without him. Um, so yes, he was a great mentor and I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, and he, he's a scientific genius, I think, you know, of a tremendously important stature. And at, at that point, um, am I right in saying you were, you were an ecologist, you were coming from an ecology, was that right? You were coming more yeah. from an ecology background. Well, I was, yeah, I mean, I was a scientist myself. I, yeah. I sort of, I, I think I still am a scientist but <laughs> yeah. of, of a different, different kind. I like to think of myself as a holistic scientist rather yeah. than a reductionist mechanistic scientist. So yeah, I was trained in uh, science from a young age and I, I ended up doing a PhD in ecology at Oxford. Um, and so I was, but I was very, always dissatisfied with it. There was always something very dry, something missing. What was that? Can you, can you, can well, you it's very name simple. it? It's, yeah. Yeah. Soul. Yeah. Science as science as I was taught it um, was utterly soulless. In fact, you couldn't talk about soul because that was taboo. Mm. Um, you know, there was no such thing as a soul. It was just all a mechanism. So your body is it? It's a form of exactly what Descartes said. You know, the world is a clockwork. Only this time in modern times is not just a clockwork. It's more like a complex computer. Although that's breaking down now, I'm glad to say. But yeah. the time when I was being trained as a scientist, when I had my doing my first degree in the seventies, it was a time of the selfish gene. I had a tremendous, tremendous success. The idea of selfish gene, and that selfishness ruled the roost, and all of that. And I found it very depressing. I just couldn't believe, I couldn't accept it. I knew there was something wrong with that whole view. Even though some of the discoveries of mainstream science, you know, like the DNA molecule and the way DNA um, is trans transformed or the information is transformed into proteins and how proteins fold and biochemistry and then ecology, all of that was absolutely fantastic. But it was soulless. And I just couldn't accept it. I, I felt very uncomfortable and deeply unhappy throughout my entire scientific training, even through PhD up to PhD level. Because um, you talk, you talk about in, um, if I remember rightly, I, I think this was during your PhD in um, in Oxford, where you were you were studying this this piece of woodland and the, the story of the monk Jack Deer. Yes. Um, that's right because mm -hmm. that that was was that it's funny i picked that up because when i was eight actually my my, my mum and dad moved we moved to a, a place that was surrounded by monk jack and i remember oh, i, re nice. I remember, i remember these little creatures and i remember yeah. you know tracking yeah. them and uh did you and oh, all, nice. yeah all kinds of stuff but i remember reading that because that was a bit of a threshold moment for you it was something quite important sort of was happening for you at that time would that be right yes well i'd come back from um I know I hadn't gone to Costa Rica, but I'd, I'd been in Venezuela where I was born. I'd gone back to Venezuela and I'd hmm. done some biology. I came back um, to England. 
This is before I went to Oxford. And um, I found a wood near my parents' place where I was staying that that had these little tracks of, you know, every, very tiny little cloven hooves all over mm. the place. And I wondered, goodness, what are they? Who's making those? So I used to go into the wood and hide myself at dusk. And then I'd see this, these tiny, exquisite little deer. I mean, beautiful, tiny little things. I think mm. their smallness is, for me, part of their charm. Yeah. And it, I was love at first sight, you know, as soon as I saw this little, little deer crossing the ride at night or at dusk in, the, in these woods. Um, I just fell in love. They reminded me of, the, of dikers, um, these little antelopes that I used to see in the African bush when I lived there when I was 19 years old. Hmm. And they're ecologically analogous to the dikers, but the, um, the deer uh, are not antelopes. You know, they're, they're, they're deer. Anyway, so then I ended up, uh, I went to Oxford looking for a PhD place and I suggested to them that I should do a PhD on Muntjac because no one had done that and they accepted me to do that. Then I found this wonderful wood near Oxford called Rushbeds Wood, um, where I spent many, many years studying the Muntjac. And there uh, I had to collect lots and lots of vegetation data and also radio tracking data on the Muntjac. So very hard work, very repetitive, very monotonous and very mechanistic. And, you know, I needed all the data. I wanted the data. It was important to have those data to understand the, the complex ecology of the muntjac deer and their behavior in relation to the ecology. But there were times when I would just stop collecting the data and my brain just hurt so much from focusing on plant cover values and tree, measuring tree breast heights and things like that. I would be exhausted with that. And I'd hmm. lean up against a tree and just breathe and relax and look up into the canopy, say, in the summer. It was the most wonderful, quiet place in those days, an ancient woodland hadn't been disturbed for at least maybe 100 or more years. And um, I was the only person there for years and years. I hardly saw anyone else there for all those years I was there. And I would just, something would take me, another sensitivity would take me over. I would suddenly merge with the whole being of the wood. I would uh, feel the wood as a great living being, as one great whole. Because I knew the wood intimately, you know, every little speck of it I knew really intimately. And so uh, the wood is as if the wood opened itself to me and I became, it let me into its kingdom, a kingdom beyond measurement, a kingdom beyond numbers, a kingdom beyond quantification, a kingdom beyond our, beyond our current scientific understanding of what nature is. The wood, the wood brought me into a, a deep living sense of the wholeness of nature. And then that expanded slowly to encompass the entire planet. I would feel the whole planet, it's somehow alive it's very beautiful experiences i would have and that those experiences kept me going um through my phd which was very hard physical and intellectual work it really was and very uh, you know i had to be a very good mainstream scientist um and then after oxford i went to costa rica for a couple of years and then i came back and then took uh, helped to found schumacher college and that's where i met james lovelock and when i met james lovelock it's as if uh, I had found what I'd been missing in science, which was a sense of the whole planet as one great living being, um, in the way I'd intuited at Rushbeds Wood, but now this time uh, given a proper scientific foundation. So there was a consistency between my deep intuitive experiences in the Rushbeds Wood working with the Muntjac and Gaia theory from James Lovelock. They, they came together beautifully. And then I think a couple of years later, Arnie Ness, the uh, great Norwegian philosopher hmm. who founded uh, or coined the term deep ecology. He came and that also added to my understanding. And then we had James Hillman from um, 
um, well, you could say a post-Jungian psychologist and yeah. Thomas More and Jules Cashford. So, you know, Schumacher College was a kind of alchemical crucible for me. <laughs> um, David Abraham as well. I mean, all <clears throat> so many of the great uh, feelers, experiences, thinkers, knowers of Gaia in mm. our times came to the college, not just famous people, but also participants from all over the world. Yeah. So I, I became part of this sort of alchemical crucible for brewing Gaian consciousness. Love it. I love that. I love that. I love that term, the great, the great feelers of our world. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, because they're always uh, talking about thinkers, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, I, and that's because that's exa- I remember, like, as I say, one of the, that first, that first week uh, with you down at, down at Schumacher, it was that, it was that ability, that encouragement to feel the world, you know, which yeah. was just, you know, I, I know, and my, my fellow, my fellow students, I know, experienced the same thing, but it was such, it was just something so, you know, it felt so right, but yet something I think for many of us, well, for me anyway, just never been encouraged, you know? I mean, no, I was, thir- no. I think I was mid thirties, I think when I came to mm. Schumacher and that yeah. whole idea that you could feel your way into the world, mm-hmm. um, when you know i grew up in the sort of you know i was born in the 70s right? i mean it was a you know it was a heady world you know it was like <laughs> that mm. you know everything was in the head you know oh, yes. and, and 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 so that that idea and i think that's what was was so so interesting about your work and and these others that you that you speak to of of sort of bringing kind of sensing and intuition and feeling into into this kind mm. of scientific realm mm-hmm. um which was you know, I, I mean, I think a couple of things we did with you that week, like you know, yeah. I mean, just the things where you'd speak, you'd sort of invite us. We'd, we'd be we'd be in the we'd be in the old postern, and you'd be showing us kind of like some slides mm. of uh, you know talking you know talking us through Gaia theory. And I remember that you shared the great acceleration work, oh. um, which is which is, has stuck in my head since then um, because mm-hmm. it's so. Uh, well, it tells you everything, right? About. Um, that story of separation, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. but then you sort of opened up the doors into the garden. said, right, let's go into Gaia. <laughs> mm. like, Cause right now we're outside Gaia, although we're right. inside and we're inside the building and, uh, just yeah. that, those invitations, um, mm-hmm. to sort of, to feel our way into, into the world. Um, mm-hmm. I'm guessing when you, when you speak to that journey you've been on, um, that must've been, you know, when you were having those experiences in, in the wood with the monk chair, I mean, the way that you were kind of seeing and feeling and sensing the world, it must have been quite hard to to share that in those times. Was it not? It was. Yeah. It was. I mean, there was some of my fellow uh, PhD students who are really great friends of mine. You know, I was very lucky to be part of a wonderful cohort. There were people studying hyenas in Africa, uh, badgers, foxes, Mara, little an animal called a Mara in Argentina. I mean, birds of all sorts. You know, it was an amazing group of young people doing their PhDs, all of us together. And with some of them, I could discuss these sorts of things, but not very many. And and also, I wasn't able to articulate it very well anyway. I wasn't quite sure what it was. Of course, I was very well of Jung. I'd been very keen on Jung since I was about, I don't know, 23, 24, or even earlier. So I knew about Jung, Jungian psychology. So that helped me a lot. Um, but certainly with the tutors, you know, no, you couldn't do it. Hmm. Uh, and you, it certainly, it just wasn't part of science. It wasn't anything you talked about. In fact, there's a bit of embarrassment about it. You know, you, you yeah. really shouldn't mention these things. It's kind of a, a real taboo. 
So what what was what's happening was that the, the emphasis on thinking was way too 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 great. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to think. Of course we do. Yeah. But the opposite of thinking um, for Jung is feeling. Now feeling we have to be clear what it is. It's actually feeling the value of something. It's not an emotion, although there are emotions associated with feeling and with thinking and with sensing and, and intuition. But feeling is basically about value, about seeing, perceiving how the value of something so with nature of course the feeling is of its immense value i mean beyond words of its intrinsic value as arnie ness would say um and we and then the sensing is just the sheer delight of the experience of seeing a tree or seeing a bird and the intuition is a sort of sense uh, intuiting where it's going where it's come from its purposes what its aims are where it's going and the thinking we know very well. I mean, we're familiar with that mathematical modeling, quantification, which is all all fine. Collecting, collecting facts, looking for patterns, that's all fine. But we need to put all those four together. And our culture is just focused on mostly on the thinking. I and mean, we're a heavily scientific culture. And that's part of the problem because science, I, I like to say, has made us clever, but it hasn't made us wise. Uh, you, the, the evidence is the destruction that Western culture, the heavily scientific culture, has has wrecked or wreaked upon the entire planet. You know, everywhere we've gone, we've we've wrecked the planet. Uh, especially now with our, our our scientific understanding. But don't get me wrong, I'm a scientist and I love science. So I'm not criticizing science, the deep the deep aspects of science in any way whatsoever. What I'm criticizing is its its denigration of feeling. Um, basically, of feeling. Most scientists know that you have to have some intuitions, and every scientist would agree you have to have sensing to do science. But feeling, ethics, you know, morals, for example, until now haven't really been part of science. I think it's changing gradually. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. There was um, I mean, there's a lot coming up here, but there was. I remember when you um, okay, when you sort of. Uh, shared that you know the view of the scientific revolution and you know where where the kind of story of separation of you know humans from from nature mm. was was really um really hatched you know really kind of profoundly sort of um launched if you like into into this yeah. modern world and yeah. um you know the idea you know you know that that's that sort of vision of you know nature as a machine dead matter inert all that mm. all that view and when you when we look at that it's you know it's only really a few hundred years old right so it was effectively mm. a a story it's a story if you like um yeah. um but i always wondered like you know what do we do we understand what do we know about just be- just before that time, I guess, how people, particularly in these landscapes, we're here. How d- how did people know the world? Was there? Do we have a sense that there was a lot more meaning and mystery in 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 people's lives in terms of their relationship to all that wasn't human? Or I'm sort of curious about that. You know how that kind of <laughs> what that looked like. Yeah. Well, you can look at anthropolog- what anthropologists have discovered, um, particularly say around about 1950s or before before the really serious destruction got going mm-hmm. um, and you could what you find is that indigenous people in many parts of the world have a tremendous connection with nature they see we would say to an, to use analytical language they they see nature symbolically so a tree 
is not just an external object as it is f for most of us Westerners. It it's a it's a living being that has a, a symbolic meaning f for me. It's the tree of life. Um, it's a tree that that you can communicate with. If it's a certain kind of tree, um, it's, it could be a very sacred tree. It could be a wise elder of the forest. It could be a, a sort of tree you, you have to give an offering to. It's a kind of sort of tree you must honor and uh, recognize and sit underneath to gain wisdom. After all, think, remember the Buddha, he sat under the Bodhi tree uh, under in Bodhgaya and became enlightened. And you know, the tree helped him with that. So um, it was the same for rivers and mountains and animals and plants. They all had a symbolic meaning. And by that I mean that they related to something very deep in our own psyche. They were part of our psyche. There was no separation. Um, it was family. And um, that, that's, that's, if you look at anthropological records, this is, you find this. This is, how, this is how we are naturally in relation to, to nature, to Gaia. Mm -hmm. We are naturally animistic. We are naturally... We have we have a very natural spiritual relationship with nature, if you like. It's it's part of who we are. Children have it. Our own Western children have it. They get so excited by nature, don't they? And they speak yeah. to stones. And little children even go around. Some little children go around with a few f stones in their pockets that they talk to. You know, the stones become their friends. I still do. <laughs> uh, well, that's good. I think we should we should do that. You see, yeah. Uh, and we, there's no reason why we can't do that and have an animistic relationship with nature and be scientists at the same time. There's certain things we wouldn't do. For example, we wouldn't chop down a, a, a tree for just to get some knowledge of the tree, unless the tree wanted us to do it. We'd have to ask whether we could do certain things. In science, at the moment, we just do what we like. We treat nature as just sort of dead, inert stuff, or maybe not dead, but certainly stuff that doesn't feel um what i'm trying to say is that we can we can still have that indigenous kind of perception of nature and be modern people you know with our science and um our technology to some extent there's no contradiction there at all mm. and i think that's where we we need to go we need to recover the indigenous person in ourselves and link that with the best things from modernity and reject the worst things from modernity which there are too many i'm afraid We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Hmm. When did you, um, and I get, you, know, you, you, you referenced Arne Ness and, um, mm. you know, the, I guess, his work around the ecological self and you know this idea of um experience you know that we have to kind of experience um the the living world the more than human world in order to um you know and that kind of fuels i guess our curiosity our questioning um and and mm. then i think his that cycle that you spoke of of the experience and questioning leads to commitment and but when did you really within your teaching what that that moment of actually you've really got to bring this experiential learning i guess into the work what was that mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about that yeah i can't remember exactly when it happened to be mm. honest with you and when i first came to schumacher college to help found it we had three months just setting the place up um, we knew james lovelock was going to teach the first course three months later i didn't had no idea what i was going to do <laughs> and nobody else did either so 
I, I didn't know. I read lots of genetic. I just I was just going to teach some standard ecology and biology. I was the ecologist in residence. That's all I knew, you know. <laughs> um, but of course, I'd had my own deep experiences in nature, um, but I wasn't sure um, how to bring them into people. So anyway, how did it happen? I don't know. I mean, I would take people on field trips. That was the thing. Uh, I think it started there. I would take people outdoors. When I say field trips, it would just be a nice walks in nature, particularly I think the one we did with you probably down the valley of the Dart, you know, in the higher reaches of the River Dart where it's woodland. Yeah. Up on Dartmoor for several kilometres of woodland. Very rare kind of situation in Great Britain. Yeah. Which is so utterly and horribly destroyed nature-wise. There's this down the River Dart, up, up uh, high up. There's a, a long stretch of woodland below dark meat. Yes, yeah, um, unbelievable. It's like it's like walking back in time. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous down there in places. Where there's no tracks and I was, I, swam, I was swimming. I was swimming there last week. Actually, it was very oh, cold. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cold. I think it. I think there it started. You know, this um, this connection with um, with other people coming into nature. Mm. So it sort of gradually happened. I also did. Uh, um, Lots of walks along the coast from Little Dartmouth to Dartmouth, which is happens to be around 4.6 kilometers, actually a little bit more. And there, um, it was just a walk. And I realized one day that I could, with a student of, of ours or of mine called Sergio Marishin, a really brilliant geologist, um, we realized that we could we could turn those 4.6 kilometers into what we would call what we called a deep time walk. Yeah. So so those 4.6 kilometers would could represent. 4,600 million years, which is the age of the Earth, approximately. Um, and I, we could tell the story of the Earth as we walked, starting from the deep past uh, and going towards the, the the present. Which we did with you on on the moor, which was, again, one that was a, it's just a mind-blowing experience because I remember this extraordinary day out on the moor where we walked and walked and learned all about this evolution of this Earth. And I think, what was yeah. it? The, it was like something like the last... The last minute or something of the walk, we kind, we kind of yeah. we kind of walked through, you know, the last few hundred years and uh, yeah, the last the last two hundred <laughs> years, which is the industrial revolution. Just a correction: I may have said the scientific revolution earlier. I may have said the scientific revolution started two hundred years ago. It was four hundred years ago. So if I did say that, there's a correction. That's okay. Anyway, um, two hundred years ago was the industrial revolution, which has created so much havoc on the planet. That's one fifth of a millimeter on the scale of 4.6 kilometers equals 4,600 million years, which is the age of the earth. On that scale, every millimeter we walk is, is a thousand years. Every wow. meter is a million years. So 200 years is a fifth of a millimeter. That's pretty, pretty mind, but that has a big effect on, on people. Yeah. And you've been doing that, that for, you've been doing that for years, haven't you? And you must've seen, and now you've turned it into this app and that, that's an extraordinary the, thing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that must yeah, be. With Robert yeah. Woodford and, yeah. and various other folks. Um, yes, there's an app called, if you just Google deep time walk, uh, you'll find the app and it's, you can download it for free mm. and just walk uh, with it. And um, we did the, the uh, script, with Peter Oswald. I wrote the script with Peter Oswald, the great playwright, you know, uh, husband of Alice Oswald. And so it's, it's really very good. I really like that app. Um, the other, the other experiential thing that, or a process that I got at the college was from Goethe because of through doing holistic science, um, and having an MSc in holistic science with Brian Goodwin, 
um, we invited some marvelous Gertian scientists to, to, to teach, Margaret Colhoun uh, and Craig Holdridge, and then also Henry Bortoff. And we spent time really learning how to relate to plants in particular with our feeling, with our sensing, with our intuition, not so much with our thinking. And that was a big influence. That still continues to be a big influence on me. And I try to bring that sort of approach into, into what I can offer at the college. I'm just curious how you, how are you sensing these times? Because this journey you've been on, um, you know, building this kind of this body of work and this, you know, helping more people explore this different way of knowing our world, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and our place within it. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is your sense right now? You know, we're, we're, in, we're in these kind of, I mean, I, I remember back in 2010, even when you, when you, again, when you, you showed us these slides, I remember that phrase, you're saying, you know, we're at, we're at war with nature. Mm. That was a, a phrase you use that, that, that stuck with mm -hmm. me. And so that's 12 years ago, I guess. What's your sense of, of where we are at this, in this moment of time? Because I guess there's, there's, like you say, science, at least my understanding is, is that, you know, in some ways the leading edges of science are now, they're now converging with this ancient wisdom and all this indigenous knowledge that, mm -hmm. you know, this, this story of interconnection, that, that everything is alive, that everything is in relationship. So in some mm -hmm. ways there's, there's feels like we're in this really interesting time where mm -hmm. there is this kind of widening acceptance, but also we're in this massively challenging time because of all these, these crises in particular, I guess, at least my sort of layman science understanding, particularly when we look at our earth systems mm -hmm. uh, and what is going on, you know, with, with, with these sort of various, you know, tipping points and feedbacks and, but what is your sense of, of where we are? What do you, how do you feel things are right now as, as we, as we begin this year? Well, uh, it's, it's a very bad situation. I would say, I think we're still at, uh, fundamentally still at war with nature. Mm -hmm. Although I suppose 10 years ago, we may not have been, as aware as we are now that we are at war with nature. I think more and more people are coming to realize that. Um, you know, witness Extinction Rebellion, for example. Hmm. Those brave folks who, you know, block, who, who sit down and, and uh, get arrested because they realize that there's a, a war. We're perpetrating a war against nature. But the situation globally, from a climate point of view and from a biodiversity point of view, it looks, it looks I have to be honest with you, it looks... Hmm very bleak mm. very depressing i find it very very depressing i mean the, the amount of wild land that we've lost and the the incredibly rapid rise in global temperatures um, and levels of co of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is really horrific really horrific mm. so i'm um, very disturbed by that every day on the other hand um you have people like david attenborough who I deeply admire, writing this wonderful book he's just come out with. Um, I think it's called Life on Our Planet. I recommend it to everybody. It's a tremendously good summary of the whole situation, incredibly easy to read, and very informative, beautifully, beautifully, a real masterpiece. Um, so we, he's, he kind of embodies this new understanding of uh, how we can live well with nature, and he describes the technology we need, the, kind, uh, the approaches we need, so that gives me hope. Um, he's very respected. I think he'll have some influence. Mm. So th this, let's call it a Gaian consciousness. It's gradually uh, taking root inside people. Uh, people are waking up to it more and more. But it's, it's slow. I think the waking up is far slower 
than the than the rate of destruction. Mm. And what we need now is the, is the rate of waking up to overtake the rate of destruction. And the waking up's got to happen on a massive scale. Um, and I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, but the positive side is that cultural revolutions can happen very quickly. You know, revolutions in consciousness can happen very quickly. This, this one has got to happen quicker than any other, and it's got to happen fast and on a global scale. And it's got to transcend national boundaries, political boundaries, all the sorts of boundaries that we humans have erected between ourselves, gender boundaries, all those boundaries, they've got to fall down. Mm. And we all have to unify um, to protect our very own planet for her own sake and for our sake and for the sake of all beings. Is that going to happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, all, all I can say is that we must all do what we can, uh, given the situations, in our own particular life situations, without being too attached to the outcome. So in my case, I've been at Schumacher College for th over 30 years, I think, and I've been you know, helping teach and writing books and speaking and doing, what else can I do? That's all I can do. Mm -hmm. That's what I've done. Uh, and I just hope it's had some effect. Um, there's nothing more I can do. Uh, and at least I've got that sort of satisfaction. And I've got the satisfaction of seeing how you know, yourself and other wonderful students and participants who've been to the college Take, take this stuff out into the world and do things with it and make, make really great changes because of Schumacher College. So that gives me hope. Um, okay. So I suppose I have hope in the face of a very, very dangerous and very serious situation. I still have some hope. But things are getting to... It's really endgame time now. Um, and that worries me hugely. Hmm. No, thank, thank you for that. And uh, I... Um... I, I, I feel of, of I have a very kind of similar kind of feeling of of what's unfolding, um, and I I come back now. I mean, more and more to 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 all of this work because this and back to feeling. So I'm a, I'm just a huge believer that now that, and I guess that's the challenge as well because it feels like we're going to have to feel our way into this new world. <laughs> and mm. um, and again, not it's not to sort of it's not to neglect the intellect, but without an experience without a, a you know a, a shift in perception um mm -hmm. i i worry that you know the, the you know I, I actually don't believe we're able to to reimagine in a meaningful way to really because we know you know we can we can recreate everything it's all it's all possible it's happening <laughs> so, i mean that's mm -hmm. the exciting thing about now we sort of we kind of sort of figured out how to sort of how to sort of uh, create better human systems on every level, you know, better for all people, better for the more than human world, you know, better in, in every way. But mm. actually, in order to really, un, you know, to all, for, to, for all of these ideas to really come, come to their fruition, um, there's, a, there's a breakthrough in, in perception, a, a feeling. It's almost like I call it like a feeling revolution almost that's sort of required. And that's more difficult because it has to happen, you know, at a human level. You know, it's not a sort of, yeah. it's not something you can sort of scale through sort of advertising or, do you know what I mean? Messages yeah. or it's a, it's a, it's a feeling, yeah. which is why I think the work that, you know, that, that, that you do and, and many others is, you know, is, is just so vital for these, it feels very vital work for these, for these times. And, um, um, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe we can, we can move into the new book, Stefan, at this point. Yes. Okay. Um, sure. and, um, Gaia Alchemy. What would you like to share something from the book? 
yeah, let me see. Um, let's see, I've got something here. I could read you. You mean to read you something? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then we can maybe just talk about. Well, this is from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Why science? Once why? It's about, I think this is about why. Why put alchemy with science? It, it upsets quite a few people. This kind of thing. <laughs> Alchemy's got a bad name in our culture. So anyway, I'll just read it. It doesn't take long. I'll read it, this little section here. Hmm. Um, I'm grateful to science for what it has taught us factually about the world. But I've also come to realize that science on its own will not help us to make the world a better place. For science develops our thinking to a large extent, but does not deliberately and systematically develop our feelings of love for the whole of nature. The result of this is that we are unable to perceive the immense value and importance of Gaia and all her beings. All this because we scientists have not been educated from early on how to cultivate, refine and listen to those feelings of love and valuing as part and parcel of our practice of science. Science has made us immensely clever, but has not made us wise. It is wisdom we need now in this time of severe global ecological crisis. We need a new kind of science that values wisdom a little bit more than cleverness. We must become Gaia-wise in these very difficult times by putting wisdom and science together. This is what we at Shumaha College call holistic science. But what is wisdom? A wise person knows how to think, how to value, how to sense, and how to evoke intuitive insights, and knows when and how to bring these modalities compassionately to the fore, in any given situation. Such a person also pays attention to dreams, knows how to enter deep meditative states, and feels the thrum of living nature in their heart. Obtaining this kind of consciousness may seem almost impossible today. However, by simply intending to do this, somehow it happens more and more. Wisdom springs from ancient regions of the psyche, from our most earthy, down-to-earth feeling for the things and beings around us. Science, quite rightly, seeks new models, new concepts, new ideas, and new experiments. In contrast, wisdom flourishes when we make contact with waves of seeing and understanding that have been with us since the very glimmerings of human consciousness, very first glimmerings of human consciousness in humanity's early days of hunting and gathering, when we first wondered at the majesty of the stars and at the immense profusion of living beings beings around us. Alchemy is a pathway to wisdom. The great Swiss psychologist Carl Gustav Jung rediscovered how alchemy helps us release the deep nature-connecting powers buried deep within our psyche. Jung is also the founder of depth psychology, the science of the unconscious mind and its relation to our conscious self. As he pointed out, there is no wisdom without the participation of our two-million-year-old self the part of us that holds the wisdom and experience of humanity accumulated down the ages. Alchemy opens up channels into valuing, sensing and intuiting and thinking that we never knew we had. It makes us more whole, more alive, more earthy. Furthermore, it helps us to realize that thinking is just one of our four major ways of knowing and encourages us to cultivate the poor relation in our personality, the way of knowing we like least and which makes us feel most uncomfortable. Often, to finish, often for scientists and other thinking types, this inferior function, as Jung called it, is feeling. 
By feeling, I mean our ability to perceive the value of things, not with our heads, but with our hearts, which are, of course, connected with love. We need much more of this way of feeling and perceiving the immense value of nature to help us through these troubled times. Thank you, Stefan. Um, yeah. So tell me about this, this bringing this together with this, this Gaia alchemy. Where, where, where's this, where's this come from for you? And yeah, well, the Gaia side is for me, the scientific side part, mm -hmm. well, not, not entirely, but there's a, you know, from Lovelock and from all, all that sort of work of earth, what we now call earth system science, yeah. the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, you know, the earth is a great integrated complex system. What we know about plate tectonics, what we know about the history of the earth through geological time, all of that incredible body of science-based knowledge, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, is fascinating, but also has no soul, really. Yeah. I wanted to put that together with soul. And then <clears throat> I've known about alchemy for many years, but I've never really connected with it. And then in one of my friend's library, in, in the library of a, an old friend of mine, I found uh, an old manuscript of Jung's, speaking about alchemy and suddenly something happened uh, i sort of recognized it somehow mm. it's as if it's almost as if you could say the old alchemists or jung himself started speaking to me through those yellowed pages hmm. it's as if i went back into the mind of an alchemist i could see what they were getting at i could see what they were after um and they were after soul basically um but also they worked directly with nature i mean they did chemical experiments, although their chemistry was, we would say now, rubbish. I mean, they didn't discover much about real chemistry. So their science wasn't really up to much. Hmm. But nevertheless, they discovered everything about soul through interacting with nature. They weren't just sitting back and speculating about it, like many philosophers have done. They actually, they actually they tried to turn real lead into real gold. Uh, and the worst of them did it for money, or try, to try to make money. The best of them realized that they were trying to transform the lead of the world, the lead in their own souls, into gold, into enlightenment, into happiness, into connection with nature. That was the gold. Hmm. Um, so all of that, because of their connection with nature and because of their em emphasis on soul, that again seemed to fill a big gap in my own search for meaning. I'd got lots of the science, um, and, you know, Gaian science is already reasonably soulful, but the alchemy seemed to fill up the, the soul part of things for me rather well. I liked the images. I liked the fact that one that it, we offered many images to contemplate and meditate on. And I started doing that, and I started noticing that I would get wonderful feelings of wholeness coming upon me, sort of insights coming upon me that I would never knew I had, you know, sort of understandings, insights, very difficult to describe it, mm. sort of openings in one's understanding, you know, through contemplating alchemical symbols and then of course I wanted to make the effort of linking that with the science of Gaia and that's why I wrote Gaia Alchemy so it's, it's really the alchemy of Gaia the planet mm. and also the alchemy of Gaia as ourselves as Gaian beings within, within our Gaian planet You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad Dan Burgess Yeah, amazing. Um, it's it's you know you 
you talk about this, you know, this, um, you know, profound personal experiences of psyche and soul um, mm. to reclaim our lost sacred wholeness. Mm. Um, you know, this this stuff, again, it's like for me, this is like so, you know, this is where all the energy goes for me. But again, it's it's. This is really, um, well, again, when we think of science, this feels kind of radical again. <laughs> I mean, not it's not radical because we need radical, right? It's like <laughs> mm -hmm. these times are calling for like as radical as we can get, I think. But um, but this mm -hmm. idea of the personal, the personal experience and the, mm -hmm. and the personal psyche and the personal soul. So what I experience a lot through my work and working with people is um, a, you know, I'm, I'm not, this isn't a sweeping statement, but I would say there is a crisis of soul going on. I would say yeah. that many people are deeply struggling with um, uh, finding meaning in in the world right now, um, yeah. yes. and and part of that I I perceive to be um, this this lack of con connection with all that is not human with this living world. Um, mm -hmm. So a sort of a you know the, the, a, we're sort of creating these lives that are so removed from. You know, they're, 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 they're so human. <laughs> so they've been shaped and constructed um, mm -hmm. in ways that um, I, what I see now as we, as we enter into these times of, of crises, that, that actually with, with this lack of meaning, um, it's even more difficult to make sense of these crises because there's a, there's a, there's mm. a, there's a, a meaning definite, a soul, a soul, mm. you know, a deep mm. kind of soul crisis. Yeah. Is that, is that sort of where this is exploring and is this part of this? Does that sort of yes. connect? Yes, I suppose uh, in a way, I, uh, this kind of work is always very personal. So I, I yeah. suppose I was, I'm trying to heal my own crisis of meaning, which was, has been very intense for me. Uh, I mean, I suffer from a crisis of meaning. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. So, so, so this, um, for me, Gaia Alchemy has helped me to to heal that crisis of meaning. Um, and you know, I'm, I think I'm a lot better with it than I was. Um, and because, you know, the thing, the nice thing about it is you take one of those alchemical images, for example, which I write about in the book, the Azoth of the, the Azoth de Philosoph, the Azoth Mandela. Yeah. Tell um, us a bit about that. About what is that? What is that? <laughs> well, you have to put a picture of it up on your, if you can. Yeah. Um, I'll be able to put a picture. It's a seven rayed star, basically. And yeah. each of the rays, it's very, it's very deep symbol. Each of the rays uh, represents an alchemical process and each of those seven alchemical processes for me represent both a psychological process in myself and in on the earth as also part of Gaia. In fact, they're, they're ha you see those images I regard, like Jung I think, I regard them as being given to us by nature. We didn't create them, we received them hmm. uh, from what Jung and Freud I suppose, would, well particularly Jung would call the unconscious or the collective unconscious. That's that would be Jung, not Freud. The collective unconscious. They it gives us images. You know this deep stratum of the psyche of the world. Yeah. The anima mundi gives us images, trying to help us with images to to feel this deep sense of connection again. Because it seems that our human consciousness has this tendency to split itself off from nature. Maybe that's why the indigenous people are forever doing rituals and ceremonies and dances. You know. Yeah, just so to anyway, keep just to keep that to keep, keep that relationship. Going, yeah. 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 So this particular image, and there are many alchemical images, called the Azoth, the Philosoph, is a lovely image, not too complicated. It's given, been given to us by nature to contemplate. 
And it's got seven basic operations that happen everywhere in nature on different scales. And the first one is calcination, burning. You have to burn something off and leave a white ash. You, know, you can see in yourself that's burning off the wrong views that one has about things and leaving a sort of residue there. Mm. You need fire for that. Uh -huh. The planet is Saturn. Um, it's very heavy, leaden kind of situation. It's you know sometimes linked to depression. It's the negrido in alchemy when you you do feel pretty meaningless and lost, um, and that's to do with you have to sort of burn that off somehow. On the planet, the calcination um, could be plate tectonics, for example. You know when um, rocks on the surface are pushed deep down and molten. That's a kind of calcination. Um, we could say CO2 in the atmosphere is a kind of calcination because that that warms up the planet. We are, calcin we are calcining the planet dreadfully, making mm. it much too warm by destroying the biodiversity and emitting greenhouse gases. Uh, metabolism is a kind of calcination. You see, you can see the parallels. Then the next phase is dissolution. The next ray is dissolution, dissolving. You dissolve what's left of this burning process. On Gaia, of course, it's rainfall and rock weathering and all these things, you see. And you can you can use the rainfall and rock weathering of Gaia. I try to use it to feel dissolution in myself psychologically. Then you get a separation. The next ray is separation. You get a separation of these um, elements within yourself, which you didn't know you had. And also in Gaia, it would be um, simple atoms that form themselves into the precursor molecules of life, let's say sugar molecules, amino acids, etc. You know, they form themselves. Um, and then we've got the next ray, which is conjunction, where in myself, in ourselves, we, we have a sort of solar consciousness appears, a kind of wholeness happens. What was separated now comes together into a new sense of wholeness. And on the earth, that's the appearance of life, I would say. Hmm. Then the next one is, the next ray is fermentation, where you ferment what's been produced and in Gaia, it's the literal fermentation processes carried out by microbes and fungi. And in myself, it's a sort of fermentation of this thing that's that's conjoined in the previous ray. Then, then there's distillation. We distill this even further. In Gaia, it's, it's ecosystems and ecological communities becoming more and more connected to each other, more, more efficient in their functioning together as integrated wholes. In myself, it's the, doing the same psychologically. And finally, you have coagulation where... In us, I think it's an experience of the living Gaia. You know, you just know that the planet really is alive and that it does have some mysterious purpose. Uh, and um, then you see Gaia, coagulation is really the, the, the final blending between ourselves and the planet. And then we start again, we go around the whole thing again. That's the sort of thing I describe in the book. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> there's a lot there. There's a, where you started when you're talking about images, mm -hmm. um, and there's something, um, you know, as I said, when I, when I went back to the start of the conversation, I was, when I was saying, uh, after leaving Schumacher, you know, nothing was the same again. <laughs> what, yeah. what part, you know, and you were talking about your own, you know, your own crisis of meaning as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've very much been, you know, uh, you know, journeying up and down with my own, you know, over the last mm -hmm. 10, 12 years, my, you know, my own personal crisis of all of this, all of this, as I'm sure, as I feel like it's almost, it's unavoidable when we mm -hmm. face into these crises and start to look yeah. and explore more deeply around us what, what, what might be happening. And, um, but this, this idea of images, and I've often wondered, like, again, in, in sort of 
a little bit of this, I guess, modernity. And 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 as we've sort of, you know, particularly I can I can speak, you know, in this culture in this country, but even things like the sort of um, demise of the arts of mm-hmm. of um, you know expression through. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes, you know, not about just our education systems, but again, how we've sort of made this stuff to feel like, you know, you, you've got to be good at something. And we, we mm. don't we don't work with visual expression very much anymore. And and I remember actually once doing some work, do, doing a medicine walk actually in Dartmoor. Um, and we spent several hours out uh, at dawn one morning, came back to this fire and we were visited by... Um, we're visited by Martin Shaw, the uh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. great, great mythologist. And uh, and he spoke to us about, um, you know, not not reflecting on what we'd experienced out on the landscapes, but mm-hmm. but just maybe to draw any mm-hmm. particular images that were mm-hmm. that were sitting with us, you know, having come back in from spending some time on our own out on the on the moors. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know drawing these whatever they were in in this notebook and actually and he said just you know don't try and make sense of anything but just it caught you know what are these images that might be coming up for you mm-hmm. um and i actually remember you know finding it really very very easy actually to sort of you know to to create these kind of images with a pencil mm-hmm. and then he said, don't try and sort of work it out, but see what happens over the next week or so, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then actually starting to create meaning and story, if you like, through mm-hmm. those through those images. And actually, mm-hmm. I've, I can still remember them now. And that was eight years ago, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, But there's something you're talking about, these images and how we work, how we work with images, which I think is really interesting because it feels like, again, that's sort of it's a way of it feels like a very human thing actually to sort of you know to co-create almost with with the living world through images mm-hmm. um but that's something that again has been you know almost taken away from it or maybe may, you know do you know what i mean it's not something mm-hmm. that we're we're practicing as a on mm-hmm. mass as a species and i, I wonder mm-hmm. where, where you know these kinds of these kinds of ideas whether they yeah they feel very very vital mm-hmm well, I mean, the children are encouraged to draw images, aren't they? Particularly in alternative schools, hmm. Montessori, Steiner, etc. But we, as you as you say, we we don't value the psyche enough. We don't value ourselves enough. We don't value what we have, our own our own treasures. I mean, the hmm. human psyche is a, is magnificent, really. It's much more than our little constrained egos, which limit us so much. You know, much more there. But the thing is. What's there is not the ego. It's beyond the ego. The e- ego has, I have trouble understanding that, you know, when I'm stuck in myself and feeling hemmed about by my own, my own limitations. I have trouble understanding it. But then when, when I start drawing images mm. or when I write down my dreams and ponder what they might be telling me, suddenly you, f- you feel the presence of a different center, um, which is communicating with you it's sort of outside outside your normal consciousness but it it it's showing you itself to to you um and it does through through the realm of images mostly Mm. music of course poetry those are all forms of image yeah um the unconscious or the self speaks through images um and the the image par excellence from the self is the mandala you know the circular figure like the azoth mandala i was mentioning earlier um, that's that's archetypal. You find that in all human cultures all over the planet. 
Um, so part of our education, I think, from ch from childhood onwards, is to take take these images seriously and learn how to work with them. So everyone's doing it. Everyone's drawing their own mandalas. Everyone's listening to writing down their dreams and pondering their dreams, and discussing their dreams with their friends. Um, you know, just like indigenous people used to do. Um, but we're also scientists, you know, that we, we are, we're still doing science, we still have our technology, we're still developing ways of capturing carbon or not emitting carbon, we're still finding ways of creating green energy um, from the sun, we're still developing agricultural systems that feed us healthy food without destroying biodiversity, we're doing all that. And in fact, the more we connect with the archetypal world of the, of the anima mundi, the soul of the world, through drawing images and paying attention to our dreams, the better we are at doing those things. The be more inspiration we have, the more we understand why we're doing it, the more the earth comes alive. Mm. And the more ideas we're given from that realm. You know, you could ask, where do all the great ideas come from? Do, I, do we invent them or are we given them? I think we're given them. And if we're cultivating our relationship with what Jung would call the unconscious, that's to say what's beyond our egos, what we're not conscious of, then... Um, we get better ideas. We we get closer to nature. We get closer to each other, and it's it's also good good for our psychological health. You know, we have a lot of mental illness in our culture nowadays. A lot of mental ill health. Yeah, that's because we're not cultivating our connection with what lies beyond our ego, with with you know, with the deeper psyche, which is ultimately the psyche of nature. So I think we need to change our educational system it, so yeah. that we include psyche in the whole in the whole process of education. All of all of um, <clears throat> where I keep looking back to and in, in inquiring into all of this, you know, again, I, what I keep looking back to is this, you know, it's almost, you know, we think of the sort of modern human culture and a, a, a society now that spends, you know, less and less time, mm. um, you know, out on the landscapes, <laughs> out on the rivers, on the, you know, yeah. It, but it feels such an intrinsic, you know, this is such a key part of building this relationship, this experience in order yeah. to, you know, like you say, to, to sort of for, for these, you know, to, to sort of connect more deeply with our own psychic selves for these, for these ideas and dreams to, to, you know, to arise in us, for us to understand these interconnections and these relationships. And then to, like you say, to bring this, to bring this energy and stuff back into our, back into our lives you know and how do we how do we sort of co-create this this future which is going to blend both you know mm. modern technology and ancient wisdom and 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 so i keep coming back to this thing of like without that without that sort of regular um connection um mm. to to, mm. to the more than human world i struggle to see how you know what i mean that's the bit i guess we where we started the conversation where how you know that feels so key you know that experience that experiential and and so what i'm interested in a lot in my work is, is you know where, where i can help others help others open up their shift their perspectives tools practices all the things i've learned from amazing people like yourselves and many others you know just how do we keep how do we keep passing this stuff on you know and, and helping more and more people find these things mm -hmm. um because again not as this is the answer you know, I don't want to go into that binary culture again of you know, right versus wrong, left versus wrong, all that stuff. But actually, I do feel like such a key part, and it's so, and also like you say, because it makes people feel so much better. You know, yeah. we actually, you know, it's like who wouldn't want to feel better? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's a. It's an interesting one um, mm. about that uh, that dance between 
you know, practice, I guess, and um, yeah. connection, mm-hmm. which has always, which has always been so, so I think so deep in your, in your, in your work. And I think you speak to that in this new book, don't you? You've, you, 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 you've, um, there's a, there's some meditations and practices and things. Yes, there's meditations. Um, and also I encourage people to find what I call their Gaia place. Somewhere close, where, somewhere where, close to where you live, you know, find, or even, even inside, if you can't get out, to make a guy a place in your in your flat or well it's it's just a little bit of nature which is wilder than, a little bit wild or quite wild or not not too disturbed by people hmm. where you can go and just spend time but you go again and again and again and again and you you might take a dream there to think ponder about a dream you might have a life situation you're struggling with well take it to your guy place and ponder ask for help from nature um or there may be something you may be writing something, you need inspiration, or you need a new understanding, or you need an insight, or you just need to relax. Take all, we take all, I would take, I take all of that to my Gaia places. And I just show up the same place again and again. I mean, I've got three or four of them close to my house. I I, I go take them there, no matter what my mood, happy, sad, whatever, I just go to my Gaia place. And if I sit there long enough, I always get some help. An idea might pop into my head, you know, why don't you do this? And say I'm doing a certain kind of research. Um, an idea will come up. Do look at this or look at that. Or, you know, if I if I'm pondering a dream, what on earth could last night's dream be telling me? I might suddenly get an insight. Um so guy plays very, very important. Um and if you can't go outside, for example, I had some folks I was working with in, in Brazil when there was a tremendous lockdown because of the coronavirus. They made some of them made guy places in their apartments, you know, high up on a multi-story skyscraper. They'd get a few plants together. They'd order some plants and put them together on a table, and that would be their guy place. I've got a guy place like that in my house, a winter guy place. So when it's really cold outside and dark and I don't really want to go out because it's not very good for my health. And I'll just sit with my little guy place indoors with my plants on a little table and imagine that they're a jungle, which they are. They make a sort of jungle together. So the guy place, I think, is very important. And it's a very simple thing to do. Of course, if you're living in a city, it may be difficult to get to a guy place. That's why I think that we need to rewild the cities. I'm not the first person to say that. I'm glad Mm. to say there's a whole movement now for putting wild, making cities um, permeated with wild places uh, so everyone can have access to a Gaia place. But as I say, even if you're in, in the middle of a big city like London mm. and you can't get to a nice bit of wild nature, you can create one in your own house, just a little corner of your house or your table where you can have some plants that you look after and just cr- try to create the feeling of a wild jungle. Uh with those plants and that becomes your Gaia place. Yeah. I love that. And it feels, um, it feels, um, now with this, again, with this, um, the pressure everyone is under with, with our, with our sort of, um, these technologies that are kind of hijacking our attention. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, which obviously there's all these extraordinary things that we can, we can do like recording this, recording this podcast, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but these social technologies that, you know, I think there's a, you know, that are, you know, as we now really understand, they are really, yeah, they're, our attention is being um, depleted, being taken by 
you know, it's, it's increasingly difficult to take yourself, sort of unplug yourself, if you like, from the from the machine, let's call it. And uh, um, but actually, this becomes even more. These guy in places, sit spots, these things become so vital because actually building those habits. Because um, I, I guess, like you know, someone was saying to me the other day, you know, like we, this is possibly the worst time ever for our attention to being being hijacked you know because we need we need humans to have their attention right now you know what i mean we we there's there's a there's a lot to be focused on right now and um yeah and and so we think of um this and it was it was it it made me think a little bit about again go, looping right back to where where we began when i remember when you introduced that you know some of the sort of descartes and bacon and that idea of sort of nature as a, as a machine um, but actually in many ways, it feels like we're sort of now, you know, we're sort of, we're part of a machine now, you know, our sort of global civilized, you know, our sort of techno, mm -hmm. um, culture, which has become almost mm -hmm. more machine-like. And actually then mm -hmm. we, we look to Gaia now and see this potentially, you know, cause we, these things like the metaverse, you know, I'm like, well, we've, we've got the universe, <laughs> we don't need the metaverse. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? This, um, you know, we, we need you know, Gaia needs us, right? But we need we need Gaia um, so much now, and the the potential now to build these these habits, I think, to really help us to help so many of us who are, I think, you know, feeling pretty pretty um, anxious um, mm. about things. So these 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 practices feel feel like they could unlock so much magic um, for folks. Yes, they can. I mean, the guy nature is full of magic, really. I think we just have to be patient. I mean, it, if, sometimes when I go to my Gaia place, it depends what's been happening, but um, it takes a while for it to for the magic to work. Um, and I just sit there and nothing, you know, you know, it's just I'm just being my ordinary self. And then gradually, often gradually, um, I can feel something animate reaching out to me from nature, from the trees, from the stream, from whatever. And then I feel more and more comfortable in that. It sort of starts dissolving my boundaries and permeating me. And I permeate Gaia. And um, a conversation strikes up between the two of us. Uh, so, and that's that's our given human birthright. Everyone's capable of that. Everyone has that, has that ability in, inborn, just like we all breathe and we all have to eat. So we all can commune with Gaia in that way. It's, it's a it's fundamental human quality to be able to do that um in fact we need it just like we need food mm -hmm. so that's why i think guy the guy place is very important some people call it sit spot you see mm. but i prefer to call it guy place because um the practice for me is whilst i'm sitting in my guy place and appreciating the forms and colors and shapes of all the trees and plants or whatever i'm also um allowing all of that perception to lead me into a sense of the planet as one great living whole. That's why I call it a Gaia place. It's a place where you connect with Gaia, as well as with the place in its locality and in, in uh, uniqueness. You're also, I'm also connecting with Gaia. And I like to connect with Gaia as an intact Gaia as she was just before we started destroying her so much. Um, maybe, let's say, 400 years ago, even at the time of the scientific revolution, revolution a lot of Gaia or, was still pretty much intact. Um, although a lot of some of her cultures, indigenous cultures, have been wrecked by by Westerners. I'm thinking of South America in particular. Mm. 
But anyway, you know, you sit there and I try to feel the great forest expense uh, extending out from where I am um, towards the east, you know, it would have been a great sort of temperate forest. And I imagine what's going on in the north, what would have happened in the north, the Arctic still wonderful, with wonderful ice cap to the south, Af the Sahara Desert and Africa and the savannas and the uh, savannah woodlands and then the Atlantic Ocean and then South America with the rainforest and the Pacific Ocean, et cetera, et cetera, Australia, New Zealand. You know, I try to really connect with the whole planet when I'm in my Gaia place. Um, and that brings me some sort of sense of healing. And then, of course, at the same time, I, I'm also connecting with the devastation that we're creating. Uh, so it's both of those things. Um, so that's a sort of simple, simple practice that yeah. one can do. A guy place practice, you could call it. Brilliant. I remember. Um, I remember at Schumacher, you uh, you invited us to um, to lay on our to yeah. lay on our backs. It's just, it's a practice you've, you you wrote about actually in, in Animal Earth, but it was That's right. yeah. yeah, and and that idea of of being held um, mm -hmm. by by this great big living Earth. And, yes. and sort of looking out in looking at sort of out down almost down into space <laughs> being right. yeah. being being yeah. held which is just yeah just magic yes so so the idea is that um we are being held upside when we lie down on our backs down on our backs on 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 the surface of our planet um we're being held upside down by the love that the great bulk of the earth gaia feels for the matter in our bodies and we're being held upside down by that love, upside down over the cosmos. This idea that uh, about love is an older idea than gravity. Gravity is what we call it. That the ancients called it more of a love. You know that the Earth has a love for its for her matter and brings it back to herself when it when it fall, tries to fall away from her. Um, so that's right. That's that's yeah. one of the practices um, I have in Animate Earth. I have another more extended one, which is, I think it would take too long to read now in Gaia Alchemy, but a yeah. more extended meditation of the same kind. Mm. So those okay. are the sorts of things you can do. Um, and I'm not the only one to offer meditations like that. The work of Joanna Macy yeah. offers you lots and lots of things of that sort, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of other people. Chris Johnson, who's worked with Joanna Macy. Um, Chris Salisbury, who's done doing similar things for children. I mean, there are yeah. many, many people yeah. who are working like this now. He's he's been on the podcast, Chris Salisbury. I, I train with Chris. Oh, uh, good, yeah, yeah. On the, the 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 first call of the wild, actually, that he did. Yeah, he's it. wonderful. That kind of yeah. work Chris does is it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's the exciting stuff, isn't it? That there is all this extraordinary. There is an extraordinary body of work that's out there. That's yes. that's, that's that's now available. You know, it's always been that's there, right. but now that's, you know now yes. it's about helping bring more of that into making that more accessible yes exactly. Um, so so listen um thank you for mm -hmm. this conversation um uh, there's so much in here and uh i really look forward to to uh to getting the new book and we will um no doubt cross paths when my my next visit down to schumacher um yeah i always i always finish this um this podcast with uh, well actually two things first of all is um the, the best i guess the best way for people to to uh to connect with you or follow your work more or get more deeply what, what where would you where would you point people well i haven't got a website you see uh, um people have asked me about this i haven't because i don't like <laughs> spending too long on the computer so <laughs> love I it haven't got a, 
I haven't got a website, um, so I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's probably the I best way. <laughs> That's why you've got a yeah. relationship with Gaia. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I love to be in touch with people, especially now in these times when you, we've had to be isolated. So maybe through the college website, and you can find an email address there. If anyone, yeah. Wants to contact me, whether I'll be able to answer or not, I don't know because emails take a long time to answer. Yeah, you know? yeah. and what um, is what is the? Um, can you give us any update on Schumacher and and just because I remember even just from a sort of building perspective, there was a lot of shift yeah. going on. Well, the you know, one of Satish Kumar's um, friends gave two million pounds to fix the old postern, wow. which is the home of Schumacher College, and that's been going on for for fix the roof and also redo the interior. That's been going on for. I think three years or more, just over three years, around three years. So it's getting, that project's coming to completion soon and we should be able to move back into the building maybe in the autumn, I'm not quite sure, but it's yeah. coming to the to an end now. The, the roof is pretty much fixed. I think they're starting to work on the interior. So soon Schumacher College will, will, will be back um, as the core of Schumacher College. Uh, sorry, the old Poston will be back as the core of Schumacher College. So that's very exciting. Yeah, that's a very special place. Yeah, um, in the meantime, there are more master's degrees. So look on the website. Um, we started with one master's degree, holistic science, um, which I helped Brian Goodwin to start. And um, now there's many other master's courses in, in food growing and engaged ecology with my friend and colleague Andy Letcher, a wonderful teacher, and and his sidekick Sarah. So I mean, wonderful courses. Uh, there's design, ecological design, there's economics all master's degrees and there are still short courses going on. So people should look on the website. Yeah. I'll link, I'll link, I'll link to all of that in the, oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so I, I, um, I kind of, I tend to finish the podcast with this, you know, this I guess the inspiration for the, for the podcast around this kind of the analogy of the earth as a spaceship and this idea of, of becoming crew on spaceship earth. I was just curious as you know, what that might bring up for you right now. Yeah. Well, I find it a little bit problematic, to be honest with you. Uh, not wanting to upset you, Dan, in any way. Don't you won't upset me. No, I mean I see what you mean, but a spaceship is a machine that's been created by people. Mm. Um, so I think spaceship is a little bit too too much of the machine metaphor for me, because when I think of a spaceship, I can't help but think of a uh, you know the space station, for example, mm. or a rocket blasting off to the moon with you know a machine very carefully crafted to keep people alive out in space or on distant planets so so that's a problem with me for spaceship <laughs> well i see i see what you mean so it's funny because i the, where i've got to with it so i've been exploring this idea of of being crew on this kind of great big living spaceship well maybe spaceship works in 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 the culture um maybe it works maybe people under i will understand that they understand machines pretty well yeah, and the one I the one idea I like, I think David Abraham expresses really well, which is that we have two bodies. One is our human body, which we're very familiar with, and that lives inside the wider body, the larger body of the Earth of Gaia. Just like bacteria live inside our guts, so do we live inside Gaia. See, everyone, a lot of people now know about the microbiome in the gut, don't they? Mm. It's becoming common knowledge. So we're a bit like that. We're like micro, microbiota, if you like, inside this great living being, which is our planet. See, I prefer that because it's more biological. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a machine metaphor at all. It's a, it's a biological metaphor. And after all, the Earth is, is a great biology, really. 
Mm. Anyway, yes, well, thank you too, Dan. It's been very nice talking to you. Yeah, no, it's been brilliant. And thank you so much, as I said, just again, for all, for all that you're doing and, uh, um, and for taking the time out today. It's been, it's been br- brilliant to, uh, to, to listen to you. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stefan. If you've appreciated listening to this podcast, would you consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a rating or review via your podcast provider? It helps more people to find us and we'd be most grateful. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stefan. Um, Lots in that. If you did, please give it a share to someone else that might enjoy it. And of course, a rating and a review, obviously. Um, If you've got stuff that's coming up for you, let us know about it. Leave us a comment in the Instagram feed or send us an email, hello at thespaceship.earth. We'd love to hear what this stuff is is bringing up. Um, You can sign up to our irregular newsletter for news on new episodes, community gatherings and more. There are very exciting plans afoot for our radical learning experiences kicking off in the autumn, the Becoming Crew experiences. So subscribe to get these updates and opportunities. We'd be very grateful uh, to hear from you. So I'm going to play out with a track. This is from a new initiative from the music industry and wider communities. It's an initiative called Earth Percent, set up by the legend that is Brian Eno. Um, And Earth Percent is about encouraging musicians and artists and the wider music industry and communities to support climate action in multiple ways. Uh, Last month, around Earth Day, they released a bunch of tracks from some incredible artists, all via uh, Bandcamp and donations of which fundraise for the Earth Percent charity. I bought a load of them. And this is a track from Brian Eno himself. It's called Did the World begin today so take good care of yourself of those around you and of our more than human family until next time peace and out this podcast is created in service to life for you it takes time funds and energy to make if you'd like to contribute to the running costs you can donate the price of a cuppa or a pint find the link on our website this podcast wouldn't exist without the following crew Charlie Shred, Audio Jedi. Vicky Turner, Show Notes. Seaman Home Burgess, Engine Room. Willow Burgess, Jingles.
Zela. 